0: Job 36 in your Bibles, please. I need thee every hour, the song said. In a manner of speaking, that song is indeed the heart of prayer. Now, we don't necessarily say it in every prayer, though I trust from time to time, perhaps you do. But isn't that the implicit statement when you go to the Lord regularly in prayer? That, God, I need you. Now, not every prayer is specifically asking for things, but every prayer is indeed taking things to the Lord, whether it be thanksgiving, praise, as our, our, we, we have uh, talked about that mnemonic, axi, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, intercession. All of those, in one form or another, is us going to God and saying, God, we need you. We can't do without you. And I need you every hour. So that is indeed a great song to sing in relation to a time of prayer. Job 36, we're continuing the message we began this morning. God is. God is. You know, whenever we study the character of God, which is what we did this morning and what we'll continue to do this evening, we are looking at the character of God specifically. This morning, understanding God to be self-righteous. This evening, understanding two more attributes of God. When we study the character of God, when we study the attributes of God, there will be two inevitable results. And these two results both bear themselves out well in the account of Job. The first Result is that we will learn better how God operates in this world. When we understand God's character, when we understand that He alone is righteous, that He is justified, that He is wondrous, it helps us understand better what's happening around us, what's happening in this world, where we fit in, what's going on, really. But it does something else for us as well. It doesn't just show us how God operates in this world, it also helps us recognize those elements of God's operation in this world that he simply hasn't revealed to us. And therefore, to one degree or another, we simply can't understand. You know, there are some things in this world, there are some things about how God operates in this world that we simply can't understand either God has not revealed enough about himself God has not revealed enough about how he works or God simply hasn't told us anything about particular avenues so that we really can't understand them you know both of these results are imperative the former because it gives us confidence to see what God is doing and the latter because it gives us confidence in what we cannot see God doing and here's why Because when we know who God is, and we know what He's doing, we see that everything that God does that we can understand is faithful, is true, and is right. And when we recognize that every single thing that God has ever revealed to us of His operation is faithful, true, and right, then we can easily understand that everything that's happening in this world that we don't understand. Everything that's happening that God is doing that we don't quite realize what He's doing or why He's doing it is also faithful and just and true. And so the known helps us interpret the unknown. And that is why it's such a benefit to us to know God. Because the more we know God, the more we understand who He is, the better we can deal with those things that we don't understand this confidence is imperative because God does not want us focusing on that which he has not given to us to understand as we serve him. He wants us focusing on what he has given us to understand and leaving the rest to him. You know, a lot of times in Christianity, we can have a tendency to major on the minors and minor on the majors. We can get so caught up in these little debates on things things that are hard to understand, things like, let's say, the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. I have spent more time discussing that topic with various people than I believe I've spent in my life talking about salvation with Christian friends. We've spent more time trying to determine where the balance is between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man than we have expounding upon and thanking God for all that he's done through salvation. There's a problem there. See, because we're majoring on a minor and we're minoring on a major. But that's a tendency of the human heart. (laughs) And I understand that those things that are more controversial, we're going to spend more time on simply because they're more controversial. But you know, God has given us things that we can understand perfectly and other things that we can't quite grasp fully. And If God had wanted to, he would have written it down 100% plain for us, but he didn't. And when we see that, it should be a hint that perhaps he wants us to be focusing on some other elements of service to him. You know, as we look into the life of Job, unfortunately, Job has begun to focus on on those elements of God's working that he cannot understand. This has derailed Job from the opportunity that he has had to justify God in the midst of his sufferings and has confused his ability to wait patiently on God as God's people are called to do. And so whereas Job, we recall at the beginning of the book, said naked came I out of my mother's womb naked shall i return thither the lord gave the lord taketh away blessed be the name of the lord his wife said curse god and die he said you're speaking as a foolish woman god has given us such good things and we receive those at his hands should we not also receive ill he had all i mean he had a great perspective and then his friends came and started accusing him and he got derailed he lost focus he started focusing in on those things that he could not understand, that he could not grasp, and he lost focus on the things that God had clearly shown him already from the character and will of God, which is justify God in the midst of your sufferings. Know that God has a plan. Know that God is in control. Know that God can give good, God can give ill, and we have no right to complain one way or the other. But he, he got derailed. You know, we learned this morning that God is self-righteous that his righteousness is sourced in himself, and that every other man's righteousness is sourced in God. So God's righteousness is in himself, our righteousness is in him, so that if I am to be a man of righteousness, I must be a man of faith, thus by faith living through Christ's righteousness. Any righteousness of mine is actually Christ's righteousness in me. We talked about that this morning. In the second part of our message this evening, we're going to see the final two attributes of God, and we're going to draw from them another implication which is imperative in the life of a believer, and we'll see that right at the very end. So this morning in chapter 35 of Job, we saw that God is self-righteous. He is righteous, and His righteousness is sourced in Himself. The only being in all of everything that is self-righteous. Second, this evening, second attribute here, God is self-justifying. God is self-righteous. God is also self-justifying. And we see this in Job 36 verses 1 through 23. Now, as we go through this passage today, we really need to keep our eyes open as we're walking through this second point much of what we're going to hear is very similar to the argument that job's other three companions make as a matter of fact some weeks ago when i was studying this i got a little confused i thought i was going to have to make an apology i was reading through this again and as i was reading elihu's argument i said "Uh uh-oh he's saying the exact same thing that his three companions were saying this sounds exactly the same here i've been trying to justify elihu the whole time and now I'm going to have to go back and say he was wrong just like the other three companions were wrong. But then I, as I read through it and got to the end, I remembered where, where um, the passage goes and we're okay here. Elihu is going to make some statements that do sound exceedingly similar and are indeed, in some cases, verbatim to what Job's three companions said. But in, in this case, it's a little bit different. We'll talk about that as we go. Job's friends approached their recognition of Job's character as well as God's character with dogmatism. Because they have known God to be a certain way, this means he cannot or will not do anything differently than what they know. In other words, Job's companions had put God into a box. This was the box of their understanding. And they said anything that happens outside of this box must be invalid because God only operates within this box. They had quantified God down to a formula. If this happens, then this is the problem. If this happens, then this is the problem. If this happens, then this is a good thing. If this happens, God's pleased with you. If this happens, God's angry with you. They had quantified God down to a formula and they said, we've got, we've got God down. We have figured Him out. That was how Job's companions approached These arguments. Elihu, in chapter 36, does something very different. What we see is, in Elihu, we see an attitude that recognizes God's self-justifying nature. That when we see something that is clearly of God, we cannot reject it simply because we don't understand it, or because it's not what we expect. We'll flesh this out as we continue. In verses 5-14, through this is very much what we've heard from the other men. Let's take a look at verse 6. Elihu says, He preserveth not the life of the wicked. Let's go ahead and go back to verse 1 for context. Elihu also proceeded and said, Suffer me a little, and I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar, and will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly, my word shall not be false. He that is perfect in knowledge is with thee. Behold, God is mighty and despiseth not any. He is mighty in strength and wisdom. He preserveth not the life of the wicked, but giveth right to the poor. Here, Elihu paints a contrast between the life of the wicked and the life of the poor. Now, this will be a help to you whenever you're reading Scripture. Whenever you see a contrast between the poor and the wicked, instead of, say, the poor and the rich, he's not speaking of physical poorness. Physical impoverishness, poverty. He's not speaking of material poverty. He's speaking of those who are poor in spirit. The wicked versus the poor. The wicked versus the poor in spirit. Jesus Christ taught in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that is what Elihu was saying here that God does not preserve the life of the wicked, but he giveth right. He giveth that which is right to the poor in spirit. Verse 7. He says, He withdraweth not his eyes from the righteous, but with kings are they on the throne. Yea, he doth establish them forever, and they are exalted. Elihu states, God's eyes, his regard, his care, his favor are upon The righteous. He states that in God's eyes, the righteous are elevated to the place of kings. They are exalted. They are established. Psalm 34 verse 15 says, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and His ears are open unto their cry. Well, we defined righteousness this morning, so that should not confuse us. Elihu does recognize the potential for suffering upon the righteous as well. In verse 8 he says that they can indeed be bound in the fetters of affliction. And if they be bound in fetters and beholden in the cords of affliction, verse 9, then he showeth them their work and their transgressions that they have exceeded. Elihu states in verses 9 and 10 that it is for a purpose, not violent destruction, but rather careful chastening. We recall Job admitted this fact that he is going through a purging process. Job 23, verse 10, Job said, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Now, a man in the midst of affliction can respond in one of two ways to that affliction. He can respond in obedient, humble obedience and thus correction of his error, or he can respond in stubborn rebellion against God. The Scriptures tell us that the humble will grow in grace and thereby prosper, The rebellious will fail to grow and thereby wither. They will become hypocrites. They will become proud and defiant. And they will fail to please God. You know, there are points in every man's life where God stretches us beyond our previous perceived limits. Where God brings us to places where we don't think we can handle it. Maybe those places are spiritually. God gives us a spiritual responsibility that is beyond anything we've ever had before and it is stretching us to the very limit of our maturity spiritually. Perhaps that is a physical stretching where God gives us an ailment, a difficulty that becomes a thorn in the flesh as it were and through it God stretches us to the very limits of our spiritual maturity He takes us to places we've never experienced. He gives us responsibilities that we have never before understood. And when a man or a woman is placed in this situation, he or she can do one of two things. He can fall upon his knees, seek God, and through the help of God, rise to that occasion, not in his own power, but in God's power. Or, he can fake it. He can put himself into a show of godliness while at the same time operating in his own power and elevating himself into proud defiance. That man becomes a hypocrite. He operates under the guise of power, under the guise of spirit leading. He might even operate under the guise of piety, but he does not actually possess any of it. I saw this quite often when I was a college student. In, at the college I was in, there were what we called at the time, floor leaders. And various students generally after their sophomore year would be asked to take on this position whereby they were in charge of a hall, seeing that the men were on the hall, seeing that things were done properly, seeing that they behaved. Uh, This was a Christian college, so there were a lot more rules than your typical secular college. Um, There was a lights out. The men had to be in bed. There was um, room check in the morning. The men had to have their beds made and their rooms cleaned, these sorts of things. But with these personal, physical responsibilities, there came a great deal of spiritual responsibility. These men became the leaders on the hall spiritually. When a guy had a problem, the guys would often come to the floor leaders for help, for counsel, for guidance. They would ask their opinion. They would seek prayer with them. They would look for godly advice. There were many men elevated to this position. Over the extent of the building, there would be some 60 floor leaders for men and more for girls. And it never... It never failed that you would see men step into the position who were spiritually not ready yet. They had never been stretched to that point yet in their spiritual lives where they now became a spiritual leader where others were looking to them for spiritual guidance. And just like any man, they had those two opportunities. They could either rise to the occasion or they could fake it. And at first, you couldn't tell which was which. But as those months went by, and now as the years have gone by, and I still know many of those men that were floor leaders at the time, it's quite obvious which ones rose to the occasion through the help of God and through humility, and which ones pretended to be the godly men that they needed to be, and which men played the part. See, because those men are the men that have now fallen away, no ministry, no influence, no distinction for God. Whereas the other men, as they have humbled themselves before God, grew as God had them and desired them to grow. Elihu presents this argument as a warning to Job. To this point, Job has indeed seen his affliction as chastening from God. He has not charged God foolishly. He has not only maintained his innocence, but he's maintained his integrity. We recall this morning, we said that his thought process had been derailed and he was in danger of getting into dangerous territory, but he hadn't gone there yet. Elihu warns him, however, that due to his self-justifying speech, it is no less possible that he will fall into the pit of the proud and those that self-justify their own actions. And so he warns, look with me in verses 21 through 23. Take heed, regard not iniquity, for this hast thou chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God exalted, exalted by His power, who teacheth like Him? Who hath enjoined him his way? Or who can say, Thou hast wrought iniquity? Elihu's statements are best summed up in the title of the second point. God is a self-justifying God. He's basically saying this, Job, your companions have put God in a box. That box says, God will do this if this happens. God will do this if this happens. God won't do this if this happens. You will be blessed if this. You won't be blessed if that. But Job, here's your circumstance. You've done right. You've maintained your innocence. There is, as you claim, no sin in your life. And yet God is doing things you can't understand. And now you're saying that God is not justified in His actions. Job, by the very fact that God is doing it, it's justified. God's actions are always justified because everything that God does is justified. By the fact that God has done it, a justified action. God's actions do not bow to our understanding. God is not required to answer to us. God operates in a general framework of perfect consistency and faithfulness. But the manner in which God's faithfulness is realized is self-justified. God works in His own way, in His own time, and according to His good pleasure. And because God did it, it is inherently justified. Does that make sense? If you see God working in the world and you say that doesn't look just, the problem is not with what God is doing, the problem is with your understanding. Because God is perfectly consistent, perfectly faithful, perfectly just, and the fact that God is doing it means it is justified. Now, we know that there are things in this world that are not that God allows, but that are not of God. I'm not speaking of those. I'm speaking of recognized God working in this world. God is justified. Third and finally, the third attribute we're going to look at this evening, God is wondrous. God is self-righteous. God is self-justified. Third and finally, God is wondrous. This will be in chapter 36, beginning in verse 24, and we'll read through the end of chapter 37. We won't read it all, but we'll preach it all. As Elihu finishes chapter 36, and as he continues into chapter 37, verses 1 through 5, he brings his speech back to a very broad perspective. Job, let's look at the broad perspective again. He reminds Job that he exists to magnify God, verse 24. Remember that thou magnify his work, which men behold. He reminds Job that God is great, and that his works are beyond Our knowledge. Verse 26. Behold, God is great and we know him not. Neither can the number of his years be searched out. God is great and his works are beyond our knowledge. He reminds Job that God has purposes that we cannot even begin to hope to comprehend. And he teaches these things. Job illustrates these things through the rain. Rain falls upon men from the clouds. In abundance. Verse 27. For he maketh small drops, small the drops of water. They pour down rain according to the vapor thereof, which the clouds do drop and distill upon man abundantly. But you know, the rain falls. We can guesstimate when it might fall. But we don't know where it falls. We don't know when it falls. No man can fully know. I noticed this evening Mr. Troy brought a raincoat with him to church. It's pretty warm, pretty hot, pretty muggy out. But you know, Mr. Troy walked to church this evening. And he would much rather carry a coat or wear a coat when it's kind of warm, kind of hot, kind of muggy out, than to be not carrying a coat or wearing a coat and to be home soaked. Because we don't know when it's going to rain. We don't know how much it's going to rain. No man can understand or alter the clouds. Even in today's technological world, no man can guess when it will rain. My wife asks me every day, what does the weatherman say about the rain today? 40%. 40%. It's always 40%. Scattered showers, pockets of clouds. What does that mean? That means who knows. That's really all it means. Every once in a while you're going to get a 100% day and they say, yeah, that band, it's not going to miss you. Every once in a while you're going to get a 0% day where there's not a cloud for a 1,000 miles and there's nothing that's going to make them. But, you know, usually the precipitation mark is 40%, 50%, 60%, scattered, scattered clouds, some thunderstorms. We have no idea. You're paying us to tell you, but we have no idea. The power and authority of rain, is according to the good pleasure of God. Elihu says, Job, look up. Look to those clouds. Look at the rain. Recognize that you exist to magnify God. Recognize that God has purposes you cannot hope to comprehend. Recognize that God's works are beyond your knowledge. Even the rain testifies to this fact. Elihu then states in 37 verse 1, that these thoughts cause his heart to tremble, that the power and direction of God over all that is, both physical and spiritual, is a great wonder to him. Look at verses 3-5 through of chapter 37. He directeth it under the whole heaven, and his lightning unto the ends of the earth. After it a voice roareth, he thundereth with the voice of his excellency, and he will not stay them when his voice is heard. God thundereth, marvelously with his voice great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend the reality that Elihu is reflecting is this what God decrees comes to pass when God says snow it snows when God says rain it rains when God directs beasts animals to come to go to dig to climb they do it Look at verses 10 through 13. He openeth also their ear to discipline and commandeth that they return from iniquity. If they obey and serve Him, they shall spend their days in prosperity. Excuse me, I'm in verse, I'm in 36. Let me read verse 37, verse 10. I "I thought we'd read that already. By the breath of God, frost is given and the breath of the waters is straightened. Also by watering, He wearieth the thick clouds He scattereth his bright clouds, and it is turned round about by his counsels that they may do whatsoever he commandeth them upon the face of the world in the earth. By the way, I did that when I was practicing this message too. I even wanted to make a point of not doing that, and I did it. That's okay. Elihu's conclusion He makes the snow. He makes the rain. He has the beast come. He has the beast go. It's all in his power. His conclusion, verses 14 through 20. Let's look at them together. Hearken unto this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Dost thou know when God disposed them and caused the light of His cloud to shine? Dost thou know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of Him which is perfect in knowledge, how thy garments are warm when he quieteth the earth by the south wind, hast thou with him spread out the sky, which is strong and as a molten looking glass? Teach us what we shall say unto him, for we cannot order our speech by reason of darkness. Shall it be told him that I speak? If a man speaks, surely he shall be swallowed up. Elihu's conclusion is this. Yes, Job. Things are bad. Yes, Job, you according to your own testimony and the the knowledge that you have of your own heart are innocent of known sin. Yes, Job, your heart is right before God. Yes, Job, you don't understand why these afflictions are upon you. But Job, consider the wondrous works of God. Consider all that you don't know is what he's saying here and let how much you don't know remind you about how much you don't know. It's kind of an interesting, profound concept, isn't it? Take a look sometime at the clouds. Take a look sometime at the animals that are around you. Take a look sometime at your fingers as they move up and down somehow at your command. Listen to one of Pastor Wickler's sermons and imagine how it is that the vibration of his vocal cords is creating something so melodious. No, but something that is comprehensible to you. How your ear is somehow taking those resonance and turning them into something decipherable. All of these wondrous things that you cannot grasp. And when you recognize how much you don't understand, understand how much you don't understand. And when you understand how much you don't understand, then perhaps all of the things that you don't understand will become less of a burden to you, and you can leave them at God's feet in faith. In Job's eyes, the bad things that happened to him were an injustice. In Job's companion's eyes, the bad things happening to this man, Job, were his own fault because of sin. But you know what? What Elihu is saying here is this. Job, your eyes don't matter. Companions of Job, your eyes don't matter. The only eyes that really matter are God's eyes. The only one who can really perceive the reasons for any tragedy, any joy, any victory, any defeat, is God. And if it's beyond our comprehension, we're wasting our time trying. But we're also wasting our time accusing God when we know that God is justified. There's a songwriter named William Cowper, and he once wrote these words. God moves in in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm." Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, The clouds ye so much dread, Are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, But trust Him for His grace behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his works in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. See, the words of that song is this. God works in mysterious ways we can't always understand them, but we can trust them. When we understand the world through the lenses of God's wonder, as we dwell upon God's plan in this 21st century, the question is, as we close, how can we take these words and apply them properly to our lives? Well, first we need to recognize that God has made Himself known to us in a very real way. We do not need to grope in darkness because we have large portions of the mind of God revealed to us through His Word. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. See, Job had but the merest glimpse of the Word of God. God had revealed Himself to Job and revealed quite a bit to him as we understand from the book of Job. And yet, for all that God has revealed, He has revealed nothing compared to what we have. Job may have heard it. Job may have seen it in visions. Job may have been able to recall it to his mind. But Job did not have a book that he could open at any time, day or night, and read and remember the character and the will of God. By the end of the book, by the end of the book of Job, this glimmer that Job has will certainly shine brighter, but compared to Job's revelation, you and I live in a lighted room. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that we see through a glass yet darkly, But as we look through that glass into the character and the nature of God, as we see and comprehend His working in our lives and in the world around us, we will not understand everything. But we have the privilege of knowing God to the very fullest extent that He has chosen to reveal Himself through the Word of God. Have you ever thought about that? We have what we call the finished Word of God. In other words, we believe that the revelation is now closed. That God is no longer adding to his words and he certainly isn't subtracting from his words. We believe that because of what the scriptures testify of themselves. That means that God has given to us in this book everything he wants us to know about him in this age. And thus Psalm 138 verse 2 says that God has magnified his word above even his own name. The Word of God, made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and recorded in the pages of Scripture, reveal to us the express image of God's person. That through a knowledge of God's Word, we can know God to the greatest extent that He has chosen to reveal Himself in this age. So God has indeed given us great revelation of Himself. Now that does not mean we will will understand everything about God. Undoubtedly, there is a great deal about him that he has not chosen to reveal, and there is much about how he operates that remains a mystery to us. But we do know that God's divine power has given unto all things uh, unto us, excuse me, all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Second Peter one verse three. So as we consider our self-righteous God our self-justifying God, our wondrous God. Though these lessons are profitable in and of themselves to understand more of the character of God, I would like to close with an appeal unto this knowledge. How well do you know the revelation that God has given to you? How much time do you spend learning God's Word. How much of God's Word do you have in your hearts? How often do you meditate upon the Word of God, seeking to understand the things that God has given to us for our learning? If God's Word is indeed the source by which we find the most complete understanding possible of God's will and God's character, it would not be an understatement to say that a knowledge of God's Word is the most important thing we can possibly acquire in this life. And so as we close, let me encourage you. Most of you have one of these in your hand this evening. If you don't, there's a pile at the back of the church that you can glean from. Most of you have one of these on your computer, on your smartphone, on your tablet. Most of you have these things all over the place at your house. But do you know it? Are you reading it? Are you learning it? Are you investing it in your children? Because by this comes the knowledge of God, and by the knowledge of God comes the understanding of God, and by the understanding of God comes the ability that we have to live this life in such a way as to please God through God's righteousness, being a self-righteous God, as well as to recognize his workings in this world and to be able to justify God in the midst of the things that happen. Let's take that as an exhortation this evening unto determined knowledge of the word of God.